Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith, so be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at no worse ratio tests, the good, the bad and the ugly of ESG ratchets and coupon step-ups, and we take a deep dive into distressed SIPEM. But first, the week's wrap. In bonds, at the time of recording, only Anacap and Served were in market, with less than 2 billion euros of senior secured notes and FRNs between them. Once again, the loans market was much heavier, with Altadia and Chepler Farm each with 1 billion euro plus TLBs in market each. Serba is back with yet another add-on. Covis Pharma is trying out the loans market after its bonds were pulled. ITP Aero is raising 575 million euros. And United Biscuits and Modular are also in market with the week's smallest loans. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up with Caitlin Carey. I'm here with our lovely Head of Covenant Research, Caitlin Carey. Thanks so much for being with us today, Caitlin. Thank you for having me, Kat. So today, you're going to kindly give us an introduction into no worse ratio tests. So these have proliferated the market, and today we're going to talk a little bit about how they've evolved. But if you could first kick off on on where this this kind of um, term, this covenant, first came from. Yeah. Um, so Kat, when we think about no worse tests in ratios, I think what tends to come to mind is the acquisition debt context. Um, so in high-yield bonds and, and bond-style loans, um, traditionally, the acquisition debt carve-out has allowed the company to incur debt to finance acquisitions if they meet a ratio test or if that ratio does not deteriorate on a pro forma basis. So that idea of a ratio either being met or just being no worse pro forma. So the basic thing would be, you know, for instance, maybe you have a senior secured net leverage ratio test of, of five times. So you can incur senior secured net leverage test up to five times, but if you're incurring it to finance an acquisition, um, even if you don't meet that five times test, even if you're at, say, six times senior secured net leverage, you can still raise additional financing to fund the acquisition as long as taking into account the targets EBITDA and the debt that you're incurring in relation to the acquisition, um, your leverage ratio doesn't get any worse than that six times that you're at currently. So it's either slightly deleveraging or the leverage just stays the same. So that was kind of historically how it's always been used. One of the things that we've seen happen in you know the last year or two has been the um, expansion of the acquisition debt carve out so that, you know, maybe the no worse flexibility doesn't just apply to acquisitions, but it also applies to debt to fund CapEx or other types of investments. And sometimes you'll even see um, deals that have ratio debt subject to no worse, regardless of what the purpose is of raising that debt. So it'll just have a sort of 
you can either you know meet this ratio or this ratio doesn't become worse and that's generally speaking cat how you know worse flexibility operates you mentioned to me earlier that you might be able to name drop some um deals that that you've been seeing this in and have you seen any trends that um that you've seen this this no worse test pop up yeah, so I've just spoken about no worse tests in in the debt covenant context. And one thing that we've been noticing is that no worse test has sort of left the confines of the debt covenant. And what we're seeing is the no worsification of, you know, high yield covenants, full stop. Um, so seeing no worse ratio tests pop up in relation to restricted payments, in relation to permitted investments, um, even in relation to portability. These you know take a few different forms. For instance, uh, in, in 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 portability, I, I think um, we've seen this in Athena Health was was one that comes to mind that basically you know had you could meet a portability uh, leverage test, or if pro forma for the change of control transaction leverage wouldn't become worse than what it was before, um, then you would be able to exercise portability, meaning that bondholders wouldn't have the one hundred one put right. Um, as long as, you know, the, so basically all, if all of the existing debt is staying in place and, you know, the EBITDA is the same, then that would be a leverage neutral, you know, change of control. And there wouldn't be a put right, even if you were well above, you know, your opening leverage, for instance. Um, so, so that is, you know, something that I think that, um, bondholders wouldn't typically expect, um, and, you know, that deal that I, I mentioned was a primarily uh, U.S. marketed deal, um, but something that could easily cross the pond and become a, a trend um, potentially in, in Europe eventually as well. Um, the other thing is in connection with restricted payments and permitted investments. So, um, again, I, I think, you know, in cross-border deals, you know, we've seen this in, in, in McAfee and Medline and Athena Health, Cobus Pharma, um, the, the bonds were, were, were pulled there, but it was something that we've noticed in, in the Bond OM, Scientific Games, um, and Ceramtech, Modulaire, Archiplanet. These are deals that had a no worse um, investments test. Um, and, and how that essentially works is, you know, if the company's leverage remains usually in these deals it was set around opening leverage so if they have leverage less than opening then they could make unlimited investments outside the restricted group so for instance maybe into an unrestricted subsidiary what the no worse limb does then is it says okay even if you are above opening leverage as long as pro forma for the investment um, your leverage doesn't become worse, you can, you know, make investments. So for instance, you know, taking a, a, an example of pharma, so, so Cobus Pharma, where they, where they pulled the bonds. So you could imagine that they might have a, a, a drug that's not generating any EBITDA yet. Um, you know, maybe there's yeah, a particular product that an issuer has that, you know, so far it's, it's, it's not generating EBITDA, but it's expected to, you know, eventually make up, a, you know, a large chunk of the business. It's, it's, it's where the growth is. Um, so if at the stage that it doesn't have any EBITDA, they were to move that asset outside the restricted group into an unrestricted subsidiary, then if they had this kind of a clause saying unlimited permitted investment subject to leverage being no worse, um, they could do it because, you know, it would 
you know, not change the, the, the numerator of the leverage ratio, you know, net debt would stay the same and it wouldn't um, basically decrease the EBITDA because it, the, the asset isn't generating any EBITDA. So it's EBITDA, you know, it would be, you know, essentially leverage neutral or leverage improving in that sense. Um, so, so that's one kind of way that we could see this, you know, potentially be used to, to investors' detriment. Um, another thing is that we have also seen a few deals where it's not just, you know, leverage being met or no worse, but it might also say unlimited investment subjects to a fixed charge coverage ratio being met or no worse. So uncapped investments as long as the company can meet say, a two times fixed charge coverage ratio. Um, so a fixed charge coverage ratio, essentially an, an interest cover test, um, and a two times fixed charge coverage ratio is essentially, you know, used as a, um, you know, throughout different parts of the covenants as like a proxy for the financial health of the, the business. But here, I mean, it's, 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 it's basically saying, you know, as long as it can meet that really basic test, it can, you know, take as many assets as it, as it wants out, out of the group, much more flexible than saying, you know, they just have to, you know, keep their leverage, you know, at or, or below opening. It's, you know, essentially saying, you know, they can keep going until they get really close to that two times fixed charge coverage ratio test. So, so that already is a pretty flexible test. But when you get to, you can make unlimited investments subject to the fixed charge coverage ratio not becoming worse, you know, you could see potentially being used in a situation where a business is, you know, stressed or distressed, kind of nearing nearing a restructuring situation. So it's not meeting its fixed charge coverage ratio. Maybe it's, you know, dropped down so that its EBITDA is just barely greater than its, its interest expense. Um, and as long as that test doesn't become any worse, they can make um, unlimited investments. So I think you can imagine a particular like restructuring sorts of, you know, maybe exchange offer situation where, you know, you move some of the assets into an unrestricted subsidiary, but then also have some kind of a, an exchange for, for some of the, the debt that was in the restricted group for, for debt at the unrestricted subsidiary. So some kind of like transaction similar to a, a J Crew or, or an Interlot, maybe. So as long as you can make it fixed charge coverage ratio neutral for what's left in the restricted group, then, you know, you can, you know, basically use this clause to, to move assets out into an unrestricted subsidiary. That's kind of where we see a potential, you know, scope for, um, you know, this, you know, potentially being really bad for, for investors down the line. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly. Today, I have with me Alex Manlopoulos and Josh Latham, two of our credit analysts and ESG specialists. Thank you very much for being with us today, Josh. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. And thanks very much, Alex. Hi, Kat. Cheers. You've put out Sustainable Junk um, this week, which is a review of kind of some of the sustainability-linked bonds and um, ESG-linked loans for January. You scrutinised uh, margin ratchets and coupon step-downs a little bit. Josh, could you kick us off with just a little bit of um, an intro into what's happened in January and maybe take us through some of the best and worst ratchets you've seen this month? Yeah, so, um, well, first, just uh kick off about Sustainable Junk, um, we wanted to highlight the biggest 
and the best trends of 2021. Um, and we saw a huge uh, insurgence of um, green and sustainable link bond issuance, which totaled 34 billion throughout the year. And sustainable link bonds made a huge majority of that. To just give you one figure, in Q4 alone, sustainable link bonds represented just shy of 20% of the European bond market, which is huge considering that they were only introduced early in the year. Now, sustainable link instruments, because of their infancy, have received their fair share of backcasts, as you said, um, with investors scrutinising coupon step-up sizes, KPIs, testing years, and unambitious targets. Um, if I was given, going to give the award for the most um, ambitious or contender for the best target, it'd be Tether. Um, they featured the most Tether pharmaceuticals, um, which uh, issued in November. They basically featured the most KPIs um, out of all same link bonds and also included environmental and social um, targets. Where we've, uh, whereas in a lot of other sustainable link deals, they've only been environmental targets. If we look at an issuance which hasn't hasn't looked that great um, crossing our lines was Rexel. We found that they had already achieved their targets prior to issuance. Alex, you focused a bit more on loans. You made a point about pushback on these ratchets. Uh, what did you find? Probably the main theme here to discuss is really the buy side uh, wising up to some of these structurings and um, uh, ratchet pushback um, and really what that means. So, of course, from a pure uh, ESG sense, as Josh was talking about, we're looking at the strength of the KPIs and the performance targets associated with this with uh, with these ratchets, because obviously that indicates what sort of changes the company is going to make moving forward. Um, however, the significance of the size of the ratchet, I think, is that it's become a good indicator of that strength of the strength of that overall ESG package, because uh, the issuers that are really thinking about those KPIs and those uh, SPTs and the ratchets that they're throwing along with them um, are the ones that tend to not see many adjustments during syndication. So, an example of that this month or in uh, last month, so um, uh, so in January, um, uh, would be Carlisle's uh, Saber Glass. So here we had detailed emission uh, and emissions. Uh, KPI and uh, also a KPI on the usage of cutlet, which is waste waste glass that uh, has been repurposed. So here, obviously, uh, that package passed through syndication without change, um, as far as we're aware. Whereas, for example, you know, as we've spoken of before, you had uh, previous issuer, uh, uh, issuers such as uh, T-Mobile, who had a much more sketchy ESG package, which was criticised during syndication. So you had a net emissions package, which therefore allows uh, offsets to play into it. So there, you know, you might not be reducing your gross emissions and you're, you can um, introduce offsets to uh, reduce your net emissions. And then um, also a KPI, which was focused on the employment of disadvantaged people. Again, a little bit of a gray area, what constitutes disadvantaged people. So there, I think, again, this is kind of the uh, uh, the differentiator that we're seeing, basically. Um, those uh, those issuers that seem to be very conscious on the ESG side have taken the time to think about the detail of the structuring and then uh, rewarded uh, for that uh, for that work during syndication, and the package tends tends to pass. Um, one trend that we are seeing, which is uh, a little bit less uh, optimistic, um, is issuers coming to market with the potential to add an ESG ratchet in future, subject to no majority lender objection, uh, such as Caldic. But of course, you know, really, what uh, what we want to see is, you know, these uh, these terms being clearly demarcated through syndication and uh, issuers and and this associated sponsor, if there is one, uh, really taking the time to try and think about the package and how relevant it is to the company, 
um, rather than kind of trying to tack on uh, a ratchet and then uh, potentially add one in future. Next up, we have the deep discussion. And today with me, I have Chris Haffenden, editor and restructuring expert. And we'll be talking about SIPEM. Thanks very much for being with us today, Chris. Uh, no problem, Kat. It's great to be back. It's great to have you on. So SIPEM, an Italian company, um, it's a big one and it seems like it's in rather a large mess. Why are we interested in this one? Um, well, I think it was because we had an announcement uh, that just caught everybody out left field on the company. I mean, the company um, has been trying to transform itself into sort of uh, the energy transition into new into sort of new markets, but some of the legacy has sort of come back and bit it pretty hard from the announcement we saw on the 31st of January. And we saw the bonds um, on the day drop by three or four points, but in the last week, week and a half, they've dropped by as much as 20 points. I mean, they are up a little bit in the last couple of days, but that, uh, there's nothing we can see in terms of additional news flow. But, you know, we've seen pretty sharp moves in the bonds. So we've gone from seeing uh, paper trading near to par to now sort of trading in the 80s for some of the longer dated bonds. And even the um, the April 22 bonds at one point were trading below 90 and they're now trading around 93. So what they effectively said was because of the, um, they were putting together the four year numbers, they said they actually had to revise the sort of the business backlog and that they were going to change their um, their earnings outlook. So what they did was they reduced Revenue and second half of 21 adjusted EBITDA down by a billion each, uh, which meant that they were going to end up with uh, negative EBITDA of around about a billion. And because of the um, the loss that they were lo- they were going to post or likely to post on the preliminary numbers, that meant that there was a, a loss in excess of one third of the current equity value of the business, which then triggered Article 2446 of the Italian Code which means that a company has to reduce its share capital after posting a loss of more than a third. So this has caused a big um, negative equity hole that has to be filled. And uh, the calculations on that are anything between 1 and 1.8 billion euros, which is pretty significant given that the current uh, market cap of the business is around 1.9 billion. So it's some big obstacles that they're up against. What's the plan? Well, I think the interesting thing is that you've got two um, large minority shareholders. It's it's a publicly listed company, but the two main anchor shareholders are Italian oil company ENI and then CDP Industria, which the Italian government has minority stakes in both, so it can become quite sort of political. Uh, And the question mark is whether these shareholders will um, contribute the majority of that, um, that equity hole. Um, we've already seen ENI put in some um, some management into the business. Um, I suppose, sort of zooming back out a little bit, it's a little surprising that when they announced, made this announcement, they didn't also announce a solution. They didn't say we've already spoken to our existing shareholders and they're supportive and and they've uh, they're willing to stump up X hundred million. So that, I think that's a little bit of a negative. The other negative was the the, ba- the the banks were already in discussions with SIPEM from about last July over potential year-end covenant breaches. So they, w- they were in track already before the restatement of breaching their covenants. The fact that they haven't actually announced any waivers or any agreements with their banks, I think, is also a little bit troubling as well. The fact that they haven't actually said anything about that. 
So I think that's one of the reasons why the market's got spooked. And there has been some sort of follow-up stories which also have caused further nervousness. One was the appointment of Rothschild company side. You know, some speculation about whether that means that they're looking for potentially more of a sort of debt solution, potentially a restructuring. Um, Rothschild haven't sort of they've confirmed their appointment but haven't actually confirmed to us whether they're role is regarding the equity raising or whether it's all debt advisory. So I think that's something else that has spooked people. And then there was also um, a quite highly read report from JP Morgan's equity research team saying that the, the equity hole could be anything up to sort of 1.8 billion, which is a sort of larger figure than most people expected. And then they also speculated that bondholders might actually have to take haircuts too, which I think also caused some nervousness. What's the latest news flow? Can you give us an indicator on where you think the company might go next? Um, there hasn't really been much news uh, in the last few days. I mean, there has been a little bit of um, recovery in pricing. I suspect there's been a few funds that are thinking about buying into this as like a special situations trade, maybe betting on the fact that there will be some sort of politically led solution and that maybe the Italian government might um, lean on the uh, the banks maybe to, uh, to help in some way. Um, I think... Apart from that, there hasn't really been much. Um, we, it could be a situ- it could be a case that there's a lot going on in the background, uh, and therefore you know we're not aware of what's happening. Uh, we haven't sort of seen that there has been decent turnover in the debt, but we haven't sort of heard of any sort of names that have been approached there. You know, in terms of potentially building up positions, we haven't sort of heard of any advisors being uh, appointed to uh, to the bonds. So that's probably where I'd look next to see whether there's actually any organisation going on. So I guess that kind of brings us to the politics of things and you've touched on this before, it sounds like it's going to be a politically interesting conversation where do the shareholders fit in here, where do the banks fit in here Well I suppose E&I is a significant shareholder because it's also a a very large customer for Saipem and can actually put a lot of business its way. So I mean Saipem is heavily involved in all aspects of sort of oil exploration and production and also in the sort of the, the infrastructure around those facilities as well. So, you know, as well as actually doing the, um, the feasibility studies and having the, uh, the drilling technology and all the, uh, the pipe work and all the other necessary infrastructure around that, there's also follow-up and sort of maintenance that goes with that. So E&I, you know, would be a sort of significant customer of theirs. The problem is that at the moment... As we know, the oil companies, despite the sort of big rise in the oil price, are not committing to those sort of longer-term projects. So they're not you know, massively increasing their sort of exploration and production spend you know, back to anything like pre-pandemic levels. So I think that's something that you, know, you have to sort of bear in mind. And also their success of actually trying to transform themselves into... You know, into a new sort of digital uh, business, I think is also something you have to sort of keep an eye on as well. Um, one of the th- one of the um, the issues that, that they've raised in the first um, in the last in the last quarter has been difficulties within their renewables uh, division, and they, they had a big contract with EDF Energy for a wind farm off the coast of uh, Shetland. And that's run into a lot of problems regarding sort of soil quality, and that's caused them about sort of 200 million's worth of losses. Um, I suppose the other thing to bear in mind is that on the restatement is what actually happened, and sort of how the company actually builds its um, business and how its profitability works. So the way that um, a lot of the contracts are awarded on a fixed price basis, so they will be in competition 
and they will uh, pitch for a project which you know, may, may take a number of years to, um, you know, to complete. And effectively, therefore, with some pass-throughs are allowed within the contract, but quite often they are exposed to project delays, increased costs, logistics issues, labour costs, you know, changes in politics and regulation around projects. So that causes them problems because the way they recognise the revenue quite often happens at various phases of the project when it's actually completed under their accounting. So that can cause quite sort of significant effects. I mean, a good example is the Mozambique LNG project, which their, their, their client is Total Energy. And the Mozambique has the third largest um, natural gas reserves in the world, and they're actually building a, a number of LNG terminals and LNG facilities. But those have been on force majeure since the um, since the spring of last year due to sort of political instability with Islamic militants, which has caused quite a lot of you know, quite a lot of issues. So that could come back uh, back into this year. There's talk that you know things are settled down there and that they could restart. But that's already cost the business around about 200 to 250 million worth of EBITDA. So it's pretty significant. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9 Fin. Many thanks to Caitlin, to Alex, to Josh and Chris, and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.